Our scripture reading this morning is in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, starting at verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. For a wide door of effective work has opened to me. And there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you. For he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. Be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subjected to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus, because they have made up for your absence, for they refreshed my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such men. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is the word of our Lord. Final words can be so important. And so we come to what appears to be Paul's final statements to the church at Corinth. It reminds me a story from my family uh, about a man who I never had the privilege to meet. He was my mother's grandfather. He, I, I just know him as Grandpa Willis. And Grandpa Willis lived over in Tennessee near where, we, uh, where I was born and, and lived until I was in early elementary school. And so when... Um, when uh, Grandpa Willis had two or three uh, episodes, maybe four or five, where he thought he was near death. 
And so when he thought he was near death, as I am told, uh, he would ask them to call in the family, and they would. And so the family would gather around Grandpa Willis's bed and wait uh, to hear, you know, those final moments as families do, uh, to hear what it is that he might say. Problem is that this had happened on more than one occasion. And so I guess at some point you wonder at what, uh, is this the real deal? Well, um, it was on one of those occasions, I'm told, that the family had all gathered in once again, and Grandpa Willis was near the end of his life once again, when uh, he was lying there just very lifeless, and uh, outside uh, could be heard all of a sudden um, dogs barking. Grandpa Willis had a couple of beagles, and I don't know why, but he named them Brownie and Flugel. And so he had Brownie and he had Flugel, and evidently Brownie and Flugel had jumped a rabbit. Now, I grew up rabbit hunting. I know you find that hard to believe at this point in my life, but I used to carry a gun and kill things, and uh, I rabbit hunted. And so Uh, If you rabbit hunt, there's nothing more like music to your ears than your dogs chasing a rabbit. And so outside, it's quiet on the inside. The family has gathered around. Everybody's quiet and reverent. And you could hear the dogs begin to chase the rabbits. And these dogs bark incessantly when they're chasing rabbits. It's quite a sound. And they're barking incessantly outside, chasing that rabbit over the hillsides. When all of a sudden, Grandpa Willis, who's near death, just pops up in his bed and says, Seek him, Brownie. Seek him, Flugel. And scared the life out of my family, my, gra- my mom tells me. It, after all, wasn't his near-death experience. Uh, he was quite well. Uh, it is easy to think that these are Paul's final words, and so we lean in, but they aren't. Uh, there's a second Corinthians. As a matter of fact, there's another letter we don't even have a copy of. And, and so you've got this letter that Paul has written, but these are the final words of this letter. And in the final words of this letter, all of chapter 16, in the final words, there are all kinds of instructions. Uh, he talks about an offering to help struggling, suffering saints in Jerusalem. And they indeed are suffering there and they need the help. Uh, he talks about sending Timothy, and he says, I'm sending Timothy. And, 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 and basically, if we summarize it, don't treat him like you've treated me. That's what he's saying. Be good to him. He's young. He's young in the faith, and so there's Timothy. He talks about a man by the name of Stephanus, and Stephanus was one of them. He was a great godly man. He uh, talks about being thrilled to have been able to see Stephanus and And so he talks about him, and that is uh, great words that he says about him. He mentions uh, Aquila and Prisca, uh, who send greetings from Ephesus. They have a church in their home, and he mentions them. But in the middle, there is this um, punching one verse, verse 13. And if you look at verse 13, it is a, uh, a riveting verse. It's uh, four commands, and here they are. Be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. 
I would say this morning that if you look at the tenor, the tone of those words, they're military words. Uh, Paul is giving in his final words to this church in this letter, marching orders. This is what to do. I've written all of this stuff, which took Paul a lot of time to do. And in the very last, I'm going to give you some marching orders. And so you'll want to take some notes this morning because there's some detail here. But Paul says, be watchful. Be watchful. Uh, Be watchful and uh, stand firm in the faith are more defensive uh, stances. And the final two are more offensive stances. So uh, let's look at the defensive stances first. Well, we look at that phrase, and the phrase means exactly what it says. Be on the alert. Watch out. So how do we know what it means? I think the best way is to pick it up from other places in the New Testament, two of which are Paul's and one is Peter's. Let's read Acts 20, 29 through 31. Paul in Acts 20, 29 through 31 is speaking to the elders of the church at Ephesus. And here's what he says. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. Remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Paul loved the people he pastored and the churches he planted. And he says, for three years I hung out in Ephesus and night and day I admonished you with tears. So what does he tell them or who does he tell them to watch out for? Fierce wolves will come in among you. That's the enemy from without. The enemy from without. Please hear me, and I want you to hear me well. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, and you trust Christ as your Savior, there is immediately a target on your back. There is a target on you. And Satan hates you, he wants you to fail, he wants you to lose, and he is your arch enemy. The enemy will come from without. What does that enemy look like? Let me be more specific. Scripture calls Satan the prince and power of the air. I'm not trying to be over dramatic here, but I want to speak directly to uh, Three groups of people today, Uh, when I talk about this, I want to speak, first of all, to young people. I want to speak to teenagers. The, the, The enemy from without for you is the prince and power of the air. And when we talk about the air today, media comes to mind. Probably two significant ways that the enemy wants to come in or does come in and invades your world and invades your life is music and video. Music and video. Just lyrics that are 
awful that opened the door for your thinking to change. And as your thinking changes, you will begin to accept things that you never ever would have accepted. You'll begin to see things as normal that you never ever would have seen as normal. Your conscience, Scripture says, can become defiled. And then after it is defiled, it can become seared. That means if it becomes seared, it's, uh, it's the same picture as if you were to take your finger to, and put some water on it and touch something hot. The water creates this wall between your finger and what is hot. You do that enough times, you'll create a callus. It won't even hurt anymore. The conscience becomes like that. The enemy from without will bring this barrage of messages that never stop. It's in advertising. It's in music. It's in readily available videos. You'll see this. You'll hear it. You'll take it in. And you won't even realize you're doing it until you bought it, until you believe it, until you practice it. The enemy from without is real. You must learn to filter. You must learn what to say yes to and what to say no to. Let me address a second group, married adults. Married adults, the enemy from without presents itself in different ways to you to married men, it presents itself often in images and video, pornography, that kind of arena. And to married men, to married women, especially in the past year, the whole Fifty Shades of Grey, the whole idea of the bachelor in the past few years, the bachelorette, the, the uh, taking soap operas and making them prime time, all of this comes in and you begin to see, or uh, we could look at Facebook and you begin to see Facebook and, you know, everybody only puts their brightest moment on Facebook you know, uh, she will post that they're out at a beautiful restaurant having dinner. Uh, she didn't post the argument from the day before, right? And so you look at this, women, and you think, oh, I wish I had a husband like him. He's so romantic. Look how good he is to her. Look how sweet he is and all of that. And all of a sudden, comparisons can begin to develop. The enemy from without is real, invasive, pervasive. You cannot step back in your being on guard against that enemy. Be watchful. How about the enemy from within? Paul says uh, here, from your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things. What does he mean? Take the word of God, twist it a little bit, and develop a whole new set of beliefs. And what is the result? To draw away the disciples after who? Them. The number one telltale sign of somebody who isn't preaching, proclaiming the gospel is that the attention is on whom? Them. You want to test that? Just see who they talk about. If they talk about themselves, if it is about what they've done or what they can do, their power, their ability, their ministry, their stuff, you're in trouble. Draw away people after them. The enemy from within just twists things. 
Colossians 4.2, Paul speaks again, saying, Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. There's the phrase again, be watchful. What we learn in Colossians 4 is practically, how do you stay alert? You pray. That's how you do it. You pray. Isn't that interesting? Prayer is the means by which you stay alert. Alert. Prayer is the conversation you have with God about life. It is your speaking to Him, your communing with Him, your interacting with Him that is so amazingly powerful. And you know what we do? We underestimate that opportunity, don't we? Oh gosh, we do all the time. I saw this evidence in my own world yesterday. In my own world yesterday, a couple weeks ago, I took Trent uh, and one of his friends down to the Panther training camp. And so we're at the, uh, the training camp. I think I shared that with you maybe. We, we go there, and, and Trent looks over at the end. He's trying to get a, uh, an autograph. And when he does, um, he sees a guy, looks at his number, begins yelling his name. And the guy comes over to Trent. It's A.J. Klein, who's a starting linebacker for the Panthers. He signs Trent's poster and hands Trent his gloves. All right, so these nasty, sweaty things Trent's pumped about, right? He gets in the Jeep, and, and he and Dylan each take a glove. That's so helpful. And uh, so they each have a glove, and they nasty. I mean, they stink. The things are massive. But Trent owns the glove of A.J. Klein, and he's pumped. Well, I happen to look out on the field, and the guy who's the president of the Panthers, I used to work with. And um, uh, I used to work with this gentleman in, uh, at, uh, at Wofford. And I think, well, he ought to know uh, this thing that his player did. So the next week, this past week, I call uh, Danny Morrison and I leave a message with his assistant. And I let his assistant know uh, that I appreciate so much what uh, uh, A.J. Klein did. I thought... Knowing Danny, he would want to know that. So I let his assistant know. Well, uh, yesterday afternoon, sitting on the sofa, hanging out, having a conversation uh, with Trent. Trent and I were just hanging out when my phone rings. And when I pick up at the other end, this guy on the other end of my phone says, uh, this is Jerry Richardson of the Panthers, and I just wanted to call you. And I said, <laughs> okay. <laughs> And he said, um, I understand you're, you took your son to training camp. And he had a great experience with A.J. Klein. And I'm like stuttering. I said, yes, sir, he did. It was a great experience. A.J. came over, tell him what happened. We go through this conversation. He said, well, I just wanted to thank you for calling and letting us know. And then he tries to clear his throat. He said, I'm sorry, I'm eating Bojangles, and I kind of got choked. I'm like, Jerry Richardson eats Bojangles? Like, that's going through my mind. And I said, he said, I went to Wofford. I said, yes, sir. And, and I did too. He knew that. And we talked about Wofford for a little bit. It was like a five-minute conversation. And I said to him and meant it, I'm so honored that you would call me and thank me, you know, for calling and reporting this. And we talked for like four or five minutes, a little Wofford talk, a little uh, Panther talk, a little this and that. And then we were done. And I hung up the phone. I was like, Trent, that was Jerry Richardson. He was like, what? I'm like, yes. Do you know, the reality is that 
the conversation I was able to have around 6 o'clock yesterday morning with the creator of the universe is infinitely a greater privilege. Amen? How is it that I've lost sight of that? You see, watchfulness takes place in prayer. Uh, It's connecting with the guy who made it all, the creator of everything, everything we see. That's prayer. That's watchfulness. Uh, 1 Peter 5.8, be sober-minded, be watchful. There it is. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Satan is our arch enemy. He seeks someone to devour. So be watchful in prayer. Be watchful against the enemy from without and the enemy from within. Secondly, stand firm. Paul says in what? In the faith. Stand firm in the faith. Now Paul uses that phrase, in the faith, and he uses that fra- uh, the, uh, the gospel interchangeably. So what is he talking about? Let me read it to you. 1 Corinthians 15, verses uh, 1 through 4. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul says, you stand in this gospel. Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. Paul's saying this is the most important, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Now, I want you to hear me and hear me well on this. We must learn to stand firm in that. You say, what do you mean? I don't mean just as an intellectual ascent. Here's what I mean. I mean that the same grace that saved you is the same grace that keeps you. That's what I mean. I mean, by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. The grace that saves you is the grace that will get you home and with joy in the journey. We must stand firm in that. Some of you are in here this morning and you failed this week. You have sinned this week. You've blown it this week. It's been your attitude. It's been an action. It's been something. And you sit here this morning and honestly, your theology is to work and to be good and to get God's approval all over again. And you just can't do that. The grace that saves you is the grace that keeps you the way God sees you. He sees you in Christ the moment you were saved and he sees you in Christ now. You stand in that, church. You stand in that grace. You can do nothing to earn his his favor. You can't make him love you anymore. You can't make him love you any less. You can't. You've got to learn. We have to learn to stand firm in that. Many of us come to, to, come to uh, God by grace through faith, and then we expect to get ourselves home. We expect to figure it out. We expect to do all of it ourselves. And, and here, we've got to stand firm, Paul says, in the faith. I know a couple of guys who are in the reserves, and when I talk to them about what they do in the reserves, 
It's the same thing again and again and again. Why? Because once they hit the ground and they're called up for duty, you know what they're going to do? They'll be ready. Oh, how good it is to day in and day out, day in and day out, review the great grace shown to you in the cross of Jesus. In the cross of Jesus. Stand firm. Act like men. This is not just for boys who need to become men. This is for children who need to become adults. It's a call to courage. It's a call to grow up. How do we know that? Well, if we look at three, uh, chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, But our brothers could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. He says, I wanted to address you as spiritual adults, but I couldn't. You're still a baby, and so I had to address you as such. 13, verses 10 and 11, Paul says this, uh, But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. There's a time to grow up. There's a time to mature in the faith. 14, verse 20. Brothers, do not be children in your thinking. Be infants in evil, but in your thinking be mature. So here's the question. How can you tell if you are? How can you tell if you're growing? And let me give you the practical way to tell. All right, here's the question. So look at me. Listen, we just started school. Are you closer to God than you were when the summer started. Was summer of 2015 a time of growth for you? Let's go a year ago. Just just look at your life a year ago. Do you know him better? Do you walk in his ways more? Do you live out your faith better than you did a year ago? You know, when you're a kid, the only way to tell if you're growing is to put a mark on the door. You know, do something. And one of the ways I've discovered is the new year. Oh, how am I doing compared to how I was a year ago? Take inventory. Act like men. Act like women. Grow up. Grow up. What would that look like? It means the things that used to offend you shouldn't offend you like they once did, it, it means that the older you get, the wiser you become. And people begin to seek you out. I just started a book by J.D. Greer called Gaining by Losing, Why the Future Belongs to Churches That Sinned, he says. And I couldn't resist sharing this story with you. I'll look at it so I don't miss the details. He talks about a California man named Larry Walters. One day, Larry Walters, this happened several years ago, decided to go and get, uh, he bought from an army surplus store, 75 used weather balloons. So he bought these used weather balloons, inflated them, and tied them to a lawn chair. You can tell where this is going. (laughs) That was tethered to the back of his pickup truck with a rope. So he convened a bunch of friends, and once he had convened a bunch of friends, he gathered them together, and when he gathered them, uh, all of these friends together that he had convened, uh, he, uh, he sat down in the chair and told them to let the rope 
go. He was hoping, a friend said later, to observe the neighborhood from a slightly different angle and gain a new perspective on his life. He took nothing with him but a peanut butter sandwich, a six-pack of beer, and a fully loaded BB gun. He's an adult. Two and a half hours later, the Los Angeles International Airport reported, quote, an an unidentified flying object in the skies above LAX at nearly 16,000 feet. Lawn Chair Larry, the reclining cosmonaut, was now three miles into the sky and a hundred miles from his original launch site. The pilot of the 737 who first spotted Larry said, and I quote, well, I see what looks like a perfectly still man sitting in a, is it a lawn chair? And I think he is holding a rifle. SWAT teams were called in. They lassoed Larry, who had passed out in the chair, and ferried him safely to the ground. And then parenthetically, he says, in case you were curious, his intention had been to lazily saunter up to the right altitude, then use his BB gun to pop the balloons to keep him there. However, when he untied himself from the pickup, friends said he shot up in the air as if he'd been fired from a cannon. He panicked and did the only thing he knew how to do in a stressful situation, break open the six-pack. About 2,000 feet in the air, he passed out. On the ground, after being revived back to consciousness, Larry was promptly issued a $4,000 ticket by local police for, quote, the obstruction of air, air traffic. He later got it reduced to 1500 bucks. A local journal, journalist then asked him three questions. Larry, were you scared? Larry said yes. And then Greer says, actually, he said more than that, but this is a Christian book. <laughs> Number two, Larry, would you do it again? Larry said, no. At least he's a quick learner. Larry, why did you do it? I just got tired of always sitting around. That's what he said. Grow up, Larry. Right. There's a time to grow up. And that's what Paul says to, the, to these, uh, act like men. Grow up. Grow up. And then finally he says, be strong. These are offensive terms, be strong. This refers to the heat of the battle. You've got to be strong in the battle itself. Where do we find a picture of that? 1 Samuel chapter 17. There's a young kid. His name is David. You know the story, but you've heard it so many times, you've missed some details. So tune in. David is king. Uh, David is, is anointed king, but not the real king yet. And he's back shepherding sheep when his dad says, take some food to you older brothers. He packs some food. He goes out probably 10 miles south uh, or so of Jerusalem, and uh, there is a field. And on either side of the field are mountains. On one mountain are all the Philistines who've gathered for battle, and on the other mountain are all the Israelites, that army who've gathered. And down between the two mountains is this open field. When David shows up, he learns of a man named Goliath. Now, what's interesting is that the old King James has said that Goliath, and may well be correct, it's hard to know, is six cubits tall. That would be nine feet and a span, so nine feet and a few inches. 
The, the difficulty is that if you look at the original Hebrew or, or, or the autograph of the original Hebrew, if you look at the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you look at Josephus' account, if you look at the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Hebrew, all of them say that he was four cubits, which is only six feet tall. Now, that's still tall for a Middle Easterner of that time, so it would be six feet and something tall. You say, Jerry, what does it matter? Here's why it matters. It's because all of us in all of our lives in that story have focused on one person. And what's his name? Goliath. And the best we can tell, Goliath's claim to fame was his ability to fight. He is called in here, not a giant. He is called a champion. Goliath can fight. He wears a formidable uh, armor that weighs 125 pounds. He's stout. He's strong. He can fight. So we pick up his story in 1 Samuel 17. And uh, let me read verses 32 through 37 to you. When the words that David spoke were heard, uh, so David said, well, why are you guys so afraid of this guy? And that guy, his brother said, you need to chill out. And that guy all the way back to Saul, David said to Saul, he goes into the king, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant, speaking of himself, will go and fight with this Philistine. Now this is courage. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth. And he has been a man of war from his youth. He's got experience on you, David. He'll lick you in a split second. But David said to Saul, I love this. Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Oh, wow. David, you are the man. I mean... Your, your, your servant has struck down both lions and his uncircumcised Philistines shall be like one of them. David's talking smack. Listen, he's talking trash like on the front line of the football team. And so, and David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and the Lord be with you. Wow. So David tries on Saul's armor, doesn't work, and then we pick up the story. He goes out, gets him a few stones, puts it in a sling, and here's what happens. The Philistine moved forward and came near to David and with his shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. He was a pretty boy. That's what he was. He was just a pretty boy out there in his, uh, in his just regular old shepherd clothes going to take on this massive, massively strong and experienced guy. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Uh, now you've got to remember, don't forget this, that on either side there is an army watching this. All right, this is, this is completely sold out on pay-per-view. And so there's an army of the Philistines on this side, and there's an army of Israel on the other. And it unfolds. 
And so he mocks David, and David said, This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air, to the wild beasts of the earth, that all the earth may know there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear. Here it goes. For the battle is the Lord's. Amen? The battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. And you know how the story ends. Stone in a sling, hits Goliath's head, he comes down, chops off his head, carries it to King Saul. They plunder the Philistines. And the writer is clear to say, David never used a sword in his initial attack. It was a sling and a stone. Why? It showed that the battle was whose? The Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. Be strong. Paul writes, have courage. Now he qualifies every bit of this by verse 14. Let all that you do be done in what? Love. Love. What kind of love? Love for God, love for others. Love underscores every bit of it. I want to talk to you about that, and we're done. Harold and Margaret Gronstaff, who are members of here, have a friend. She's 92 years old. She doesn't know Christ. And she's dying. And Harold called and said, would you come visit her? So this week I trekked to Asheville, went into the hospice house over there, and I met her for the first time. I walked into her room and Harold left us and I sat there and I prayed, God, with all of the grace that you have, Open this woman's heart to hear the gospel. Articulate. She's been retired longer than I've been alive. Lived on a schooner out off the coast of California with her husband. She taught school for years. 92 with a bachelor's and a master's degree. That's unusual for a 92-year-old woman very bright. I prayed for clarity of mind and an open heart. And we began to talk. In the background was playing on the TV what a lot of people would call elevator music. You know, just soothing music. I didn't recognize any of the tunes. Maybe if I knew classical music a little better, I would. I just don't know it that well, and I didn't recognize any of the tunes. They just played in the background. I was with her for about 45 minutes in that room, and we began to talk. And finally, she said, I know you're here for a reason. We shared a little bit about ourselves, and I said, yes, Harold is so concerned that as you get close to the point of death, you come to this 
not knowing where you'll spend eternity. She began to share her background. She said, I've never been a religious person. She told about her mom, her faith, and her dad and his lack thereof. And she said, so ever since I was a teenager, I've been searching. Wow. You've searched all those years? And she said, I really thought that I found my answer in education. Maybe if I could educate people and get educated myself, I would make a difference in the world. But as with all human efforts at finding ultimate satisfaction, that came up short. So I began to share the gospel, and I must tell you that when I got out of there, I had a headache from just the energy of trying to be focused and in this moment. And what happened? I'm such a pragmatist. I probably count out where God is working more times than I should because I'm such a realist and I'm such a pragmatist. But this is what happened. And this is why Paul writes, let everything you do be done in love. Because right as I begin to share the gospel with her, all of a sudden coming through the TV is a song that I know. What? And if I were to sing the words, here's how that song would go. Classical, everything around it. The song that came on after, I did not recognize. Why in the world this song came spilling into that room other than the love of God for a 92-year-old woman who's rejected him all of her life? Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. And I sat there, and I looked around, and I thought, God. You love her that much that at the age of 92, having spent a life devoid of you, you would invade this room with the best-known invitation song in the English language because of Billy Graham. And I continue to share. She didn't come to Christ. I'm going back today. When I finished with her, I said, could we talk more? She said, I'd love to. Her name is Eileen. You can pray for her. I say this to say, you have no idea if you're lost in this room today, the depth of the love of God for you. 
you have no idea. Why do you spurn that? Why do you not say yes? Why do you not answer him? Why do you not answer his invitation? His pleading with you to trust him as your savior. What is it that you hold on to? What is it that you think will ultimately satisfy you but never will when he woos you and he calls you and he wants you and he desires you so much that he would send his only son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross for you? Why? Why? I'll say yes to a God like that. Number one. Number two. For all of you who know him, why not love others like that? Why not? And so what I'm going to do for all of you who know him, and especially who are members of grace, we have four distinct opportunities for you to love others like that. This is not for you who are completely plugged into ministry. This is for you who are sitting on the sidelines and it's time to stand up, grow up, and get in. You'll get an email this week. And there is work for you to do. Would you bow your heads?